Thank you. Excellent singing. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 128. Psalm 128 will be our text for this morning. Psalm 128. Hopefully you are enjoying the extremely hot weather. I'm not, but maybe you are. But uh, Psalm 128, I'm going to ask you this question. Have you ever lived through a time of shortage? I mean, a time when you didn't have enough of something, whether it was food or money or another resource where you were just you just didn't have what you needed. Now, I'm not old enough to be a part of this, but I've heard people talk about this, and that was the time of the Great Depression, or even after that, the time of World War II when, when so many things were rationed in our country because of the war effort that people went without. There was shortage. Millions of Americans sacrificed to make sure that our armed forces had the materials they needed to wage war. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember the oil embargo of 73? How many of you remember that? I don't. I wasn't born yet. just wanted to point that out. But the oil embargo of 1973 was when the members of OPEC uh, proclaimed an embargo, and by the end of the embargo, in March of 74, oil prices had quadrupled, and so it, impact, it impacted our nation in, in numerous ways, and this crisis caused uh, global and local short-term and long-term economic and political problems. Some of you maybe remember the long lines at, at the gas stations where you would have to wait for a long time to just get gas in your car. There was a huge gas shortage. Now, in hindsight, we look back at that. 1974 prices were pretty cheap compared to today. But uh, it was a time when uh, the prices went up dramatically. Um, I remember even since my wife and I got married, and we were first married, I was in 1999, I was uh, in the delivery business, and so I'd go to gas stations a lot, and there was one time when I went to this area, and there was four gas stations on one corner, and they decided to go through a price war, and uh, they dropped the price down to 93 cents a gallon. This was in 1999, so I think we all wish that was the case today. Today, we don't necessarily have shortages in terms of material possessions as a nation. America is the richest nation on earth. Uh, and I'd still uh, prefer to live in America than probably most any other country. But America does have a shortage. That's more important than any material possession. Our culture is facing a shortage of men. Not just any kind of man, but real men. When I say that, I'm not just talking about men who can lift lots of weight. I'm talking about men who love and serve God. Men who are, are sold out to God. The question we ask is, what is real manliness? How would you, if I was to ask you, how would you describe what a real man is? I'm sure we'd all give different answers, but really, what is a real man? You know, the world will describe it in different ways. We today, even even today, we live in a culture where where manliness is being put down, or changed, or altered. There's only one place that we can find what it means to be a real man, and that is the Word of God. 
In the Bible, we find out that in the beginning, God created male and female, and, and when he made them, he made them with fundamental differences, and then we're not referring just to anatomy, we're referring to how, who they are, and God made us different as men and women, and, and the world and the devil are doing anything they can to blur the distinction between man and woman in the name of equality, but God made us different. In this passage we're going to look at today in Psalm 128, I'm going to look at the definition of manhood. As we talk about on Father's Day, what does God want? This isn't just for fathers. This is for all men. This is whether you're uh, 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 an adult or whether you're a teenager or whether you're a kid and one day hope to be a man of God. What is a man? So let's look at the passage in Psalm 128, and I will read it. and You can uh, follow along as I read. It says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat of the fruit of, his, uh, of the labor of your hand. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem in all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. God, we are truly grateful for the opportunity we have to look into your word this morning. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help each man, teenager, child, as they listen to this, that this will be something that they strive for. Lord, I pray that you help each uh, woman to be the type of woman that helps men become men. And Lord, I just pray it will be a church that we're filled with men who love you, who serve you faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at this morning. Sorry, I'm a little warm. Uh, I want to look at this morning. What does what is uh, manhood? What does that mean to be a man? If you uh, look in this passage, look at verse one. It says, "Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways." And I look at first of all, we want to see manhood is defined by a walk with God. Manhood is defined by a walk with God. And I want to look at this in three different ways. In your notes, you'll see this. First of all, what is a walk with God? A walk with God is practical. What do I mean by that? Well, the word walk that we see in Scripture in this passage and throughout the Bible is a metaphor for behavior. It's a metaphor for how you live, how you act, uh, how you interact with others. One of the first places we see this, one of the first times we see this idea of a walk with God was with a man by the name of Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The idea is someone who walks each step of his life attempting to honor God. Men, God wants you to be a man of God. And that means practically that every day you strive to live for Him first. That your, your main goal is not living for yourself. Your main goal is not uh, doing what it is to advance your own kingdom. But your main goal is to advance the kingdom of God. And, and practically that means that every moment, each and every day, that you strive to live for Him. The original, in this, in this passage in Genesis, the original Hebrew meaning walk here implied that Enoch went to and fro with God, continually conversing with him as he drew closer to him. Man, it's the idea of, man, you, you want to establish a relationship with God. 
that you wake up and, and you think about God. As you go through your day, you spend time with God. Guys, I know we're all busy, but we need to spend time in the Word of God. Now, maybe you don't have time to spend two hours every morning studying the Bible, but you do have time you know, throughout the day. You know, I, I love talking to some of you men and talk about how you know, you'll be at work and you have a moment where it's, maybe it's a, a lull in your work and you pull out your Bible and you read your Bible. That's what we should be doing. We should be getting to know more about God. And the, the idea of this passage where it says Enoch walked with God was that he spent time walking arm in arm with God every day because the Lord was his very life. So much so that we see in this passage in Genesis, it tells us that he was not for God took him. God didn't even allow him to taste death because he so wanted to be with Enoch. We don't know exactly what happened, but, but he didn't face death the way you and I have. Why? Because he had such a close walk with God. See, Enoch learned to walk pleasingly before the Lord in the midst of a wicked society. Enoch lived in a time when the Bible tells us that the wickedness was growing so rapidly that it wasn't long after Enoch when God called Noah and said, No, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm tired of the sin. But in the midst of that wicked society, he walked with God. Now, who was Enoch? We don't know much about him. He was an ordinary man with all the same problems and burdens that you and I carry. He wasn't some hermit that was hiding away in a wilderness cave. He was involved in life. He, he had a wife and children and obligations, and, and he undertook all of his responsibilities. He cared for his family. He worked hard. He ministered. He occupied. But the thing about Enoch was he was not earthbound. He was not consumed with the world around him. He was not consumed with building his kingdom. None of the demands of this life kept him from walking with God. I believe if we were to know Enoch, we would know that in spirit, Enoch was not part of this wicked world. That each day as he walked with God, he became less and less attached to the things on this earth. Less and less consumed with the things of this earth to the point that finally one day God says, you know what, Enoch? I'm bringing you home. I'm going to take you to be with me. If you study, if you study the Bible, you see Enoch lived in a time when, when men and women lived much longer. If you study about that time, many of Enoch's relatives lived to be 800, 900 years old. Enoch was relatively young. He was in his 300s. But uh, he, he was so close to God in just that time. Mankind grew increasingly ungodly. And yet as man changed into, Scripture describes them as wild beasts full of lusts. Enoch became more and more like God. And though he had no Bible, he didn't have a songbook, he didn't have a pastor, he didn't have a fellowship, he was probably one of the only ones that walked with God at that time. And yet he walked with God. Men, there is no excuse you can make that gives you an, uh, an out from walking with God. 
There's no excuse that you can make that says, well, you don't understand my situation. There's nothing. I mean, Enoch could have, could have stood up and said, God, you know, I mean, look, everyone here in the world is wicked. Everyone here is doing their own thing. But how do you expect me to live for God? I mean, I don't have anyone instructing me. I don't have any written word for you to give me. I don't have anything. And yet Enoch didn't do that. Man, the question I have for you is, how, is, how important is God to you? Do you walk with God? I'm not asking if you come to church. I'm not, I'm not asking you if, you're, if your family comes to church. I'm not, I'm not asking you if you have a, a, a good little family. Do you walk with God? Does your relationship with God drive you to be something different? Are you changed because of God? I had the privilege um, yesterday... My nephew got married uh, down in Muncie, and so my family went down to the wedding, and so we got to see all of my family, which is really um, a, a fun time. We, don't, we, we live all over the country, so that's great when we get together. And uh, I got to see my dad. One of the things I appreciate about my dad growing up is I knew when I got up in the morning, at some point before I left for school, I would, I would see my dad sitting on his, his lazy boy recliner reading his Bible. And it's something that I was very accustomed to seeing. That his Bible was something that meant something to him. And his Bible was, was earmarked, it was written in, it was... And, and, and uh, I know that that's still my dad's pattern today. How important is God to you? See, the, a walk with God is practical, but secondly, a walk with God is principled. Looking back in this passage in Psalm 128, it says this, Blessed is everyone who fears God, who walks in His ways. But... In order to walk in His ways, you need to be principled enough to do that. And what is your principles based on? It's based on uh, not what other people think. It's not based on other people's opinions, but it's based on your relationship with God. We tell that to our kids all the time. You know what? They, they, they uh, cannot rely on our religion. They can't rely on our faith. It must be something that's real to them, that they, that they love the Word of God and they follow the Word of God. But, men, that has to be the case with you. It has to be based on your relationship with God. And here, what does it look like? It says, then a godly man will lead his family in fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a dominant theme throughout the Bible. You see it over and over again. Right now, as a family, we're, we're, uh, we're for the summer months, we're studying Proverbs. And we just, I just gave my kids an assignment the other day to find passages in Proverbs where it talks about the fear of the Lord. And there's a number of them. Look and see. What does it say? All these things that it talks about that you cannot be until you fear God, until you understand what it means to fear God. So what is the fear of the Lord? What does that mean? I define it this way. I define uh, the fear of the of fearing God is a healthy respect and reverence for God. Now, I don't want to stop right there, but I'm going to say it again so you can hear that if you're writing it down. It's a healthy respect and reverence for God. But it's, it's, it's a healthy respect and reverence for God that stems, that comes out of a knowledge of God and results in obedience to God. See, it's one thing to say this, oh, I'm terrified of God. You know what's interesting? The Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons understand who God is, and it scares them to death. 
But but fear of God goes beyond that because fear of God is saying, yes, I revere you because I know who you are. And then, then that causes me to change my behavior. You know, we fear some things because we don't know them. You know what I mean? You ever you ever confronted you ever met someone and your first response was, I don't know this person, but your first response is fear. I remember a few years ago, I I, uh, I finished work and I was heading home and I went out the front door on the church here and I went around the corner where my car was and there was a guy walking towards me. And my first thought was, this guy is going to kill me. I mean, he was a massive man. He did not look like in in, in the initial picture he did not look like a man who you know was happy and go lucky and wanted to come and give me a hug and my initial response was i'm gonna die i remember specifically i had my keys in my pocket and i grabbed my keys in such a way that if he made a move i'd smack with my keys that's all i had so i thought that would work and he walked up to me he said to me hey can i talk to you and i realized and, and ended up being a guy that uh I talked to a couple times, and he ended up being a a very godly man. And I made a wrong assumption based on that. See, I had a fear based on a lack of knowledge. But that's not what we're talking about God. With God, there is a fear based on knowledge. Now, that can go two ways as well. You can have a fear that's, that's based on knowledge, but it causes you to avoid the thing which you fear. Let me give you an example of that. I've given this example before, but imagine, if you will, if, if uh, uh, a heavyweight boxer came walking in here. I'm not up on boxers, so I couldn't name one for you right now, but so I'll, I'll take one from old. Imagine if uh, Mike Tyson came walking in here. How many remember Mike Tyson? Okay, he was the guy known for biting off someone's ear in a, in a rink. Okay, but he was also known for this. The man was powerful. Probably still is, but he was powerful. I mean, he, I remember one fight where one punch and he knocked the guy out and the fight was over. He was powerful. Now, if Mike Tyson walked in here, walked up here, and he said to me, Hey, Pastor Pete, I'm going to challenge you to a fight. Now, I know enough about him that I would be a complete idiot if I tried. Okay, and so I would run as fast as I could away from him because there is no way on earth I'm going to fight him. That is a fear with knowledge that causes us to run. But that is not, again, what we're talking about when we talk about fear of God. See, a fear of God is this, and, and, and I was trying to think of an illustration. Let me, let me put it to you this way. At home, I have a circular saw, okay? And uh, I'll use it from, some t- from time to time to cut things. And, and so I have a circular saw. Now, I have a knowledge uh, that my circular saw can cause me tremendous damage if I put my fingers next to the blade. Okay, and so because of that, it's not that I avoid it because I still use my circular saw. I don't avoid it. I use it when I need to, but rather I treat it with the proper respect. And I understand that as I'm cutting something, I don't stick my finger right where the blade is about to go because I've learned, not because I did it, but because I know not to do that. See, that is the idea of a proper fear of God. It stems from understanding God. It stems from understanding the greatness and the power and the holiness of God. And as I know how great God is and how powerful and how holy, it changes the way I am, but then it, it, it causes me to obey Him. It doesn't cause me to run and stay away from Him. It causes me to alter the way I live to show my respect. Our God is an eternal God who spoke the vastness of the universe into existence. 
Modern science can't even fathom uh, the enormity of our universe. In fact, we can't even, modern science can't even figure out the, the simple functions of the human body. Yeah, we've learned a lot, but there's still so much more about the human body that scientists are still trying to figure out because it's a marvel. I mean, we, we, can, we can figure out maybe how to heal people sometimes through medicine, but, well, you know, we as humans have not yet figured out how to keep bodies from getting sick. We still get sick, don't we? We have not figured out, uh, unfortunately, we have not figured out how to keep from growing old. We have not figured out how to keep from dying. We cannot create or explain the essence of life, but God can. The enormity of God is that God knows every little minute detail about you. And that should cause you to fear Him in an understanding way that leads to obedience. Yet proud, rebellious man shrugs off God by saying that it just happened by, by sheer chance. And man just one day appeared and evolved. Honestly, how absurd. The Bible describes a person like that that says there is no fear of God before their eyes. If we see the great, God's greatness and power, we will fear Him. We should fear Him because we realize that He is the great and powerful Creator, but He is also absolutely holy. He's holy. And His holy standards demand that we uh, uh, are, are sinners. We have violated His holy standards. And every time in the Bible, here's, here's the amazing thing, and I've mentioned this before, but every time in the Bible when a righteous man, a holy man, a godly man that's trying to live for God, yet, yet is still a man, every time a man like that comes in, gets a glimpse of God's splendor, they cower in fear. They cower in fear. We could look at example after example. We can think of someone like Moses when he saw the presence of God at the burning bush and he was terrified. We can, we can think of someone like Isaiah when he saw the Lord and his angels around him high and lifted up and the Bible tells us that he was coward. We can think of in, uh, in Re- Revelation when, when uh, John saw a glimpse of Jesus Christ, the reincarnate Christ, and the Bible tells us that John fell on the ground and played dead because he was so fearful. Every time people in the Bible that saw God, they were stricken with fear. None of us could even dare to draw near to the holy, powerful God if He revealed Himself to us and if He hadn't revealed Himself as a God of love. And here in this passage in Psalms 128, He says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Men, we are to fear God. And that fear results in obedience to Him. Notice what it says in Proverbs, Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of sin. Pride and arrogance. Uh, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. We talked about last week the, the impact of um, how a holiness should affect us, that we hate sin. And it says that again here, if we, if we fear God, we're going to hate evil. We're going to have nothing to do with it. 
And so the walk with God is practical in that uh, it's something that we should do day after day. It's principled in, in the fact that it is based on a fear of God. And then thirdly, the walk with God is pleasant. Just look quickly at this. You look at the beginning of verse 128. It uses the word blessed. Uh, you've probably heard this before, but that, that word uh, means refers to a state of happiness. Uh, a man who walks with God and seeks to live his life according to the principles and, and precepts of God's word will be a happy man. We see it also in chapter in, in Psalm 127, verse 6. Blessed is the man. He uses the same word there to talk about having children. But here he's talking about a man who fears God, a man who walks in God's ways, is a person who will be happy, will be blessed. Second thing I want you to notice is manhood is seen in a walk with God, but secondly, manhood is observed in hard work. Notice, if you will, verse 2. It's describing now, now it's building upon that. Now this is a, this is a man of God who, and it could be a woman of God, but it's a, a person of God who fears the Lord, walks in his ways. Then notice what it says is the product of that, the result of that. It says, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed you shall, it, and it shall be well with you. We see two things from that. First of all, hard work produces the fruit of his labor. I believe that God has intended all able-bodied men to work. To work. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That God, God wants us to work. That was true of Adam before the fall. It's also true of us after the fall. That God wants us to work. The idea here is that, that they, you labor, and as you labor, you will receive the rewards of your labor. It's the idea that the laborer himself, not... Not others enjoy the profit of his toil, and in this he is to rejoice in the privilege. Notice what it says in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Behold, I have seen to be, uh, be, excuse me, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Tells us there that as we toil, we then, uh, we then receive the results of that. Now, we live in a culture today. We don't live in a farming culture necessarily. Although yesterday, driving down to Muncie, Indiana, I realized actually we do live in a farming culture, but not our area specifically. And I don't even think we have any farmers in this church. But, so the idea was a farmer, but it's the same for whatever job you do. That is, you work hard, and as you labor, you receive the results of that. And God wants a man of God to work hard and so that you will receive the fruit of your labor. But second part of that is hard work produces the favor of God. Notice, if you will, at the end of verse 2, he says, you shall be blessed. It's the same word that we see in verse 1, but then he adds to it, and it, and it shall be well with you. The sum of these two verses is if a man walks with God, if a man works honestly and hard, then he will be a blessed man. If you walk with God and work hard, then you will have success. That phrase, well with you, that means good, merry, uh, desirable, in working order. As you work for God, as you work uh, in what you do, God will uh, bless you. David describes this man in another passage in Psalm uh, 1, verse 3, says, He is like a tree planted by streams that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
This man is one who prospers in everything he does. What is this man like? We're not going to look there, but the first two verses there describes this man. And what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't listen to the counsel of ungodly friends. Guys, that's a tendency sometimes as us as guys is to listen to other uh, counsel of ungodly people. What it says is a person who's going to yield his fruit, a person who is going to prosper is one that does not listen to the counsel of ungodly people. It also says this, he doesn't rub shoulders with wicked men. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't walk around with wicked people on a regular basis. It does not mean that you do not interact with uh, unsaved people, but the idea is you do not walk in way with them so that they rub shoulders with you and so that they rub off on you. You are not impacted. Your life is not altered by them. And a person who fears God and a person who walks with God is going to be a person who does not rub shoulders with the men, wicked men. Third, it says in that passage in Psalm 1, 2, but, uh, that he does not spend time with mockers. It says he does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. He does not come and dwell with those who ridicule and mock. You know, it's... Uh, it's one thing to be a person who likes to kid around. And sometimes as, as men, we like to do that. Okay, um, I am a sarcastic person. I like to joke around with people. But the idea here of a mocker is mocking that which is good. Being a scorner is the one who puts down good things. And God says a man of God or a woman of God is one who does not spend time with people like that. They're cancerous. And if you are a person like that, then you're cancerous. You're a mocker. But in Psalm 1, verse 2, it says this, but his delight, his love, is in the law of the Lord. Is in, is in God's Word. You know, people, uh, you know, I, I just don't have time to read the Bible. Okay? We find times for so many things, don't we? Don't we? We can sit and watch a football game or a basketball game or a movie or something like that. We can uh, do things like that, but our love should be this word. Our love should be that the, the what God has for us here. And he says here that a man who is prosperous is one who loves this book. He works hard, and as he works hard, he receives the favor of the Lord. Thirdly, we don't look at manhood is expressed through a spiritual wife. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 128. He says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. The man that fears the Lord, the man that walks in his ways, is one that has a wife that is a fruitful vine. That vine, to be fruitful, it must be cultivated. Now, sometimes this, ner- this verse might make you as women nervous. You maybe are thinking, you mean that I have to be something specific for my husband to succeed? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Let me explain it this way. Charles Spurgeon explains it this way. He says, a helpmeet, which is what, what God called Eve, a helpmeet was needed in paradise. Think about that for a moment. God looked down into paradise, a sinless world, and looked down and said, Adam is not complete. So I'm going to give him a help me, Eve. 
What Charles Spurgeon has said is this, is a help me was needed in paradise, and assuredly she is not less necessary out of paradise. In other words, we still need that help me. It is not every man that fears the Lord who has a wife, but if he has a wife, she shall share in his blessedness, and she shall in fact increase it. To a large degree, a husband determines whether or not his wife is a fruitful vine. Now, some people think that this passage is talking about childbearing, but it is not. It's referring to a wife that produces a life of fruit, that lives in a way that is pleasing to God, that loves God, that it follows God. Now, not, not every time is that the case. If, but that's the idea here. The, the, the standard is that. that and basically what, what God is saying here in this passage is that a family is like a garden. And how the father, how the husband uh, cultivates the garden has a lot to do with how much fruit is produced. So me as a father and me as a husband, if I instill into my wife, into my kids, godliness, then I have a better opportunity of cultivating fruits of godliness than if I never do it. If I'm a husband that's not cultivating godliness in my, my wife and my kids, guess what? The likelihood of me having a godly wife and kids is, goes down. Now, they can still do it because anyone can be godly. Anyone can be godly if they will follow God. But the idea there is that it is my responsibility. What I'm saying is, is that the treatment of a husband on his wife is to nourish her and cherish her so that he helps her to grow to be a fruitful person, socially, but more importantly, spiritually. My chief assignment from the Lord where it concerns my wife is to make her a radiant, beautiful child of God. Husbands, that is your responsibility. Too often we let, the, we let our wives be the spiritual leader. And your responsibility is to make your wife a more godly woman. And I want to caution you for a moment. You can cultivate a garden and circumstances can change in such a way where you still have a fruitless garden. And so the responsibility rests on the husband, but he can do all the work and still not always have the results. Because it's still up to the wife to make right choices. We see the same idea taught in, in Ephesians when it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands, love your wife as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, but no one hates his own flesh. But notice what it says, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. We have a responsibility to nourish and cherish then notice, if you will, in Psalm 128, it gives a phrase at the end there. It says, your husband, verse 3, excuse me, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And the idea of that is that, uh, that it should be something that is reflected in your home. But that always comes out. I'm not saying this is foolproof, but most of the time, if you want to know what a man is really like, find out what his wife says about him at home. What is he in the privacy of his home? tends to be who he is. Is he selfish? Does his wife seem beaten down verbally? Does he demean her with comments that were intended to make her small? Husbands, we shouldn't do that. 
Or in the home, are you a husband that you're the same thing here in church? Okay, I've, I've been in ministry long enough to know that sometimes we come as families to church and it's been a rough morning. You know what I mean? Any of you ever had those or is it just my family? Okay, you've had a rough morning and you get up and it's like, I got to go to church now and somehow act godly. Okay, but what are you on a consistent basis? We all have bad days, but what are you on a consistent basis? Are you a godly husband at home? First Peter says this, Husbands, love your, live with your wives in an understanding way. I love that. I love that verse. It's a reminder that um, I am supposed to, as a husband, daily get to know more about my wife. I've been married almost 20 years, and I should grow to know her more and more all the time. What are her likes, her dislikes? What makes her happy? What makes her sad? My responsibility is to be the type of husband that helps her to grow. Manhood is, is seen is by how we are as husbands. And then last, manhood is measured by his impact on his children. Notice the end of verse 3. It says, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Finally, the psalmist says here that a man that fears the Lord, your children will be like olive plants around the table. He's using again the idea of of farm, the idea of a garden, and that is that he is to be a God-fearing, loving husband who also uh, cultivates his children, his olive branches, his olive trees in that passage. And uh, he is to be type that does that. Look what, look what Paul says about this in, in Ephesians. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up to uh, encourage them, to help them grow. It is that responsibility. One of the meanings of, of, of those words there is the idea of tending. I think the King James says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That idea of nurture is, is that tending a garden we know gardens take work. They take a lot of weeding. They take a lot of uh, pre- preparation. They take a lot of uh, taking time over those and watering and, and, and doing everything you can. Dads, that takes great effort. It takes tremendous effort. I read recently, this, just, this saddened me, I read recently that the average father in America spends seven and a half minutes a week with his kids. Seven and a half minutes. I think you would have to agree that you can't nurture children in God in seven and a half minutes a week. Josh McDowell, the author, says this, rules without relationship make for rebellion. And the idea what he was getting across was this, is you can't just be the dad who comes in and says, do everything I say, and, and your kids are going to turn out great. He, he says the idea is what he's saying is, is we have to build relationships. Yes, we give rules. Yes, we tell them how to, how to live. Yes, we are authoritative, but we do so in a loving way so that they know that we love them. We care about them. The greatest problem facing America today is not rebellious wives. Although, you know, maybe some have dealt with that. 
or even rebellious children. The greatest problem I think we face today in families is rebellious husbands who are not willing to face their responsibility of building character into their children. I heard a story about a man by the name of David Kraft. David Kraft was a big, strong man. He was all muscle. He was a powerful man. He was at the age of 32. He was he was about 6'2", about 225, uh, and all muscle. Uh, he had gone to seminary and he ended up working. Uh, he was good in athletics, and so he worked in the area of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and uh, he served as a chaplain in, in Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and. Uh, when he was 30, uh, 31, he was diagnosed with cancer. It destroyed his body. Oh, and, and within a matter of months, he had dropped from 225 pounds down to 80 pounds. When he was ready to pass from this life into eternity, he asked his father to come into, him, into the hospital room with him. And the story goes that lying there uh, on his deathbed, he looked up at his dad and he said, Dad, do you remember when I was a little boy? Do you remember that whenever I was afraid or whenever I struggled or whenever I didn't know what to do, that you would just take me and you would hold me close to your chest and your arms? Dad nodded. And David said, Dad, do you think you could do that one more time? And again, his father nodded. He bent down and he picked up his 32-year-old son who was now wasted away to 80 pounds. And he held him in his arms and they were face to face. And the son looked at him. He said, Dad, thanks for building character into me. That enabled me to face moments like this. Because I'm a godly man, I know what God's doing in my life. And I got there because you were a godly man. And you built character into my life. Men, I dare you to be that kind of man. I dare you to build into your kids character that enables them to face anything that comes their way. You will be a real leader, not only in your home, but all around. As I said yesterday, I got to be with my family and I just, I was thankful for the, the, the family that God has put me in, and we, I was, I was going to put it on the screen so you could see it, but we took a, a family picture with my parents and my, my siblings. I have three siblings, and, and to, to see my siblings, and my, my oldest sister is married to a pastor, and my brother, man, he serves the Lord all the time. He goes on mission trips constantly, and my sister is actually my, my younger sister. Uh, some of you will uh, like this connection. My younger sister goes to church where Pastor Ice is uh, now, and, uh, and, and then myself, and and just to see that, and it was reminded to me uh, of that, although my parents weren't perfect, although my dad made mistakes, he built character into us. And he was a man who, is a man who fears God, walks in the ways of God, serves God. Dads, are you doing that? Do you walk with God? Do you work hard? Do you have a wife who you are cultivating? Do you have children who you are nurturing? Are you a, a man of God? Let's pray. God, I do thank you for the privilege uh, I have of being a dad and being a husband. I know that is greater than the task of pastoring this church is, is being a dad and a husband. And Lord, I pray that you will help me to be 
the type of dad and husband that you want me to be. God, I, I, I know that there are times I fail. There are times when I'm not patient, I'm not kind. There are times when I put myself above my kids. There are times when I, I care more about my kingdom than yours. There are times when I fear people more than I fear you. And Lord, I pray that you will continue to work in my life. Lord, help me to be a man of God. And God, as the pastor of this church, I pray that you will build up in this church more and more men who want to serve you. Lord, a man is not characterized by how strong he is or how many weapons he has or what kind of car he has. Lord, I pray that the men of this church would be characterized as men who fear you, who walk in your ways. Lord, I praise you for this church. I praise you for men in this church who are that. And I pray that they will continue to be. Lord, we thank you this day that we could celebrate fathers. And I just pray that you will bless the dads in here today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Nate.